We'll pull it back together now. Come on down. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Let's get going. I hate to cut you off, but that's what we're going to do. For those of you that came in a little bit late, I did announce that uh, we will be having Christmas Eve service here at 7 on the 24th, and I'd also announce that today we're not going to do Sunday school after the service. We'll pick that up in the new year on January 9th. I just want everybody that came in uh, after the announcements to hear that. Uh, we're at Luke chapter 2, surprise, surprise. Uh, it's uh, probably the most famous of all the Christmas passages. It's one we'll talk about on Christmas Eve, but it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. And Advent is this slowing down to actually engage and participate in this waiting for the coming of Jesus so that, that when, when we celebrate his birth, we can actually have had the anticipation of waiting, which we still feel as we wait for his re- to return. We've, we've looked at hope. We've told the story of Zechariah. We've looked at peace, where Mary said, may it be to me as you have said, and how surrender becomes this pathway to peace. Last week, we, we talked about joy, how God loves to use the lowly to transform the world. And today is the candle of love. And this, like I say, is the most familiar of passages, Luke chapter 2. It's been played out over and over from peanuts to veggie tales to all these Christmas programs you've seen throughout your life with the kids on Christmas as we get close to Christmas. So there's really nothing new textually coming at you this morning, but I want us to read it carefully and slowly and with some openness to what God might say through this text that we've all heard multiple times. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read it, I'm going to get some help partway through from a real big celebrity, so uh, I'll just start with Luke chapter 2 verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And now my guest reads. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And Linus stopped at 14, so I'll pick it up at 15 again. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Let's start just where the text starts. Let's start by reflecting on the Bethlehem journey. This, this first seven or eight verses. It's a story, like I say, we hear it every year. This young Jewish couple, they make their way to their ancestral hometown. And while she's there, I love how it says it, and while they were there, the time came, right? Like, like it's not a big deal for the baby to be born. Well, one of the things I think is maybe our familiarity with the story causes us to minimize what's going on here. The fact that this gets played out over and over, that we've seen it a million times, numbs us, and we miss a little bit about what's really going on here. The first thing I want you to see is that where we read the text from makes a big difference. Where we read it from. I I learned this years ago when I was in Mexico for a a year short-term mission project, and I was um, watching tourists in Mexico And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but American tourists can be very loud. You ever notice? If I said Canadian, you guys would be offended, but you're happy to laugh at the American. And I'm sitting back and watching this group of American tourists in the the middle of of a big plaza in Mexico. And and I say to a Mexican friend of mine, why is it that our Americans are so loud? And he says, because you've never been conquered in your own homeland. He says, Mexicans are never that brash and outrageous in strange places because they've been beaten into submission in the past. Americans have never had that. And I realize where you read something from, the way you approach life and the place you approach it from impacts what you see. And we live in this first world country, right, where we travel to see our friends and our family and our relatives most of the time we travel, right? Uh, We go home for Christmas, right? And that shapes how we read these first five verses, especially, sure, Mary's pregnant, she's very pregnant, and no, riding on a donkey would not have been good for a pregnant woman, but we kind of get this sense that they're making a trip. They're going to their ancestral hometown. And what we miss is this picture is the epitome of powerlessness. The epitome of powerlessness. Just imagine the scenario from their vantage point. You're a lower class tradesman. You're living under Roman rule. And travel is not something you just do for fun. It's not something that happens a lot. It's inconvenient. For Joseph, it takes him away from his livelihood and his contacts and many of his tools. And it's 160 kilometers from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it's not a choice. They have to go. They're both required to go. It's not like they thought, hey, you know, we should spend this time with some family, and while we're there, we'll register. They're told they have to go register. And so they go because they have to. Now, I know some of you, and me too, have felt frustrations with the provincial health orders and the control, and we can't do things we want to do. Well, imagine being told to leave your your home and your job and take your almost ready-to-give-birth wife 160 kilometers by foot or on a donkey, to a place where you don't necessarily have any place to stay. And to do it when she's going to have the baby. It's the epitome of powerlessness. They can't make any choices for themselves. And what do you do? 
when you have little to no power and a wife who's going to have a baby any minute? What do you do? Well, you do the best they could with what they had. Such a, an inglorious scenario. The Messiah born and put into this cattle trough. I know we always see it with wood. It was most likely hewn out of stone from what they found. But, but they had to, to put him there because there was no room for their baby or for them to be born that night. I remember with our firstborn, I was, I was a stress ball. And I realized I'm not the one that has to do all the work. But I was, you know, we lived in Vancouver. Our hospital was in Burnaby. And I'm, you know, I had it mapped out in my head. I knew how long it would take at different times of day. I knew what we, I had all these concerns and stresses about what would happen when my wife finally went into labor. And, and, and Joseph must have felt some of that, and he had no resources. But he did the best he could. He's homeless with a wife in labor, and this manger becomes the spot where they're going to put their baby. See, see the Bethlehem journey, far from a Christmas card scene, was a homeless couple forced to make a difficult journey by a coercive government power that really saw them as nothing but a number. Right? They went to register. They went for the census. They weren't Mary and Joseph. They were Jewish subject number 4,672. They were, uh, you know, 4,673. They were a number. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like you were forced to do something you didn't want to do, a place where you felt powerless? Well, the good news is that's where Jesus shows up. That's where he shows up. That's the way he chooses to arrive. I love Frederick Buechner, and he's got this great quote about Christmas. I'll give you the shortened version. He says, once we have seen Jesus in a stable, we can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humanity. I love that. This is, this is the way the God of the universe chooses to come in this, this inherently powerless situation with a couple just doing the best they can. And if you continue with the text after that, it gets to what I even call the most unlikely scenario. Talk about an odd pairing. You have shepherds and you have the hosts of heaven having a conversation. These are not the people you would think that you would see speaking to each other. And yet that's how God does things. He, he puts people together that might not normally be put together. He, he decides to do things in ways that we wouldn't expect. And it starts with what the shepherds would have been doing every night, sitting around a fire most likely. And then verse 9 shows what's next. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around about them. And they were terrified. They started with a terrifying experience of glory. They saw, really, the transcendent realm, the divine realm opened up. And they saw something they had never seen before. It's a recurring theme in Scripture that when people come face to face with transcendence, with God, that they're terrified. Right? Isaiah had his vision in the temple in Isaiah 6. Ezekiel was called, and it says when, when the call came, he fell flat on his face, and the Spirit had to actually come and stand him up. You remember the transfiguration with Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John on the mountain? It says they fell face down, and they were terrified when they saw it. See, the, the reality is as human beings, we can't handle the glory of God. And people always talk about, you know, God's going to wipe sin out. He's, gonna, he, he's angry at sin. Well, the, the, and it, in a sense, that is true. I mean, we do see passages that talk about that. But the reality is, I don't even know how to describe this, but God's goodness is so pure 
that impurity can't even stand in front of it. It, it crushes impurity because it's so pure, it's so good, it's so holy. And in that moment, you know, it's, it's like that, well, okay, dial it down by a million. I'm going to give you a scenario and, a, and take a, a million times that scenario, but have you ever had a scenario where you said something about someone and then your friend's faces went kind of south and you're like, oh, they're right behind me, aren't they? Mm-hmm, they're right behind me. Well, multiply that million by about a, that feeling by about a million. And that's, that's seeing the glory of God, this terrifying experience of glory. They were terrified. The Greek word is phobos, from which we get phobia, which actually minimizes it. It actually means a terrifying fear, a terror. And the shepherds are thinking, this is not what we learned in shepherd school. We never learned what to do when angels show up. They never, my father, who taught me how to shepherd, never taught me that. The shepherd, they were the outcasts. You hear this at Christmas too, right? They, they couldn't participate in most temple worship because they worked with dirty animals all the time. And they had a reputation, especially in that area, for gossip and deceitfulness. Most, most times in a tribunal or a court, they wouldn't even be allowed to be a witness because they just weren't credible. And these guys, when they had this experience of glory, they were terrified because they knew who they were. And often, you know, when we come face to face with our own sin and our own brokenness, we may feel that terror too. How can God love me? And that's why, why verse 10 is so, so important. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be great joy for all the people. Because in that glory, a word of grace comes in the glory. Right? They have this terrifying experience of glory, but they also have this word of grace. Do not be afraid. Good news of great joy for all people, even shepherds. Today, a Savior has been born to who? To you. Right? Not to the world. They say it right there, to you, shepherds. And it's the Messiah. The Anointed One, Christ the Lord. The one we've been waiting for. And how can you be sure? Well, this will be a sign to who? To you, shepherds. This is grace. They're terrified by the glory of God, and yet God is is saying to them, don't be afraid. I'm inviting you in to something. And to me, this is the spiritual life in in a little microcosm. We all come face to face with our own brokenness and with our own sin, and we feel fear and shame and guilt. We feel overwhelmed. But if we stick around long enough to listen, in that same moment comes a word of grace. There's a Savior born to you. You are not abandoned. You are not going to die. There's hope. To me, this is the greatest part about being a Christian is that our mission, well, I won't even say the greatest because sometimes you have hyperbole and it's not true. But a great part of being a Christian is, guess what we get to do as our mission? We get to go into the world, and as people are dying under the crushing weight of glory, we get to speak that word of grace. We get to say, hey, don't be afraid. A Savior has been born to you, and this is how you'll know who he is. This will be a sign to you. You People feel the glory of God in our world, but it feels differently when they're not ready for it. It feels like emptiness. It terrifies them, even if they don't realize what they feel. That the very thing they were created for, they're unable to do, and there's this disconnect, and that's the feeling of glory, and we get to go into that and speak a word of grace and say good news to all the people. 
And the reason that's so important is because glory plus grace yields desire. Verse 15, what do they say? They've been terrified. They thought they were going to die. They hear the word of grace, and the first thing they say is, let's go see this thing that the angels have told us about. There's a desire now. Just, just a minute earlier, they were terrified, afraid for their life, wanting to run away from the glory, and now the word of grace means they can run to the glory. Let's go find it. Let's go see this thing, and it doesn't stop there. Not only do they go see it, but they spread the news, and the people who weren't trusted to even be witnesses in a legal proceeding are the ones entrusted with the news to tell the world the Savior has been born. I love that. And then they go back to being shepherds, right? They don't get called onto the Oprah talk show. They don't get their 15 minutes of fame after that. They just go back to living life as shepherds. You see, glory overwhelms people, and by itself, it will crush us. It will make us want to run away. But when the word of grace comes in that glory, it actually turns us and gives us a desire to be in it, to see it. And if we take a step back, if we hear that word of grace, that word of forgiveness, in the midst of the glory of that first night in Bethlehem, it helps us in learning the way that love comes. Because we're talking about love. You've, you've heard the statement, I'm sure you had, love came down at Christmas. It's on tons of Christmas cards. And, and it's true, but it, sometimes it feels a little trite when you look at the world around us. But it, instead of saying love came down, I want us to talk about how did it come down? What, what do we learn about the way love likes to do things, the how, in this situation? Because you know what? The, the scripture says in 1 John 4.19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. So, so we need to think about how God's love comes because that's the way the love should flow through us to the world. I'll leave you with four things about how the love of God comes to the world. First, and I think probably the most surprising of all, is that the love of God seen in the birth of Jesus, in the incarnation, it allows for rejection. It allows for rejection. If Jesus had been Herod's son or any ruler's son in the palace with a title, born to power with pomp and circumstance, no one could have said no to him, right? Mary and Joseph couldn't say no to Quirinius. We're not going to register because he had things he did to people that said no to him. Jesus, had he come into a ruler's household, it would have been hard to reject his authority. But he came to a couple that was powerless, and he's lying as a baby in a manger. Talk about powerless, right? I remember with, with kids, my kids, thinking, if we just left them there, before they could move, they would just die. I mean, I didn't mean that. I didn't desire that in any way, right? <laughs> I promise. Um, but it, it's, it's an overwhelming thing to think of how powerless a baby is. And that's the way God says, oh, I'm coming that way. The way love comes allows for rejection. It, it prophesied that back in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him. This is talking about the Messiah like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of, sor a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus came in a way that allowed people to reject him. That's the way love comes. It opens the door to that possibility. 
Matthew 2, 3, when Herod heard about the baby, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod had the power to reject Jesus. You see, that's one of the things we need to know about the love of God. It comes freely, but it is not forced. It allows for rejection. In fact, it loves in spite of rejection. On the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he's receiving the ultimate rejection, he loves. And we're we're often afraid to love, to risk rejection. But God shows us a love that allows for that, that loves in spite of that. How many times have we, in our words and our actions, rejected God? Just say, I'm going to do my own thing, and yet he still loves. In all his glory, he speaks a word of grace, and if we let it, it draws us to him, and it draws others, others around us to him as well. The second thing I see here about the love of God is that it comes to and through the oppressed. The whole story is about God coming to those who were cast aside by everyone else, the lower echelons of society, the nobodies, and Jesus, following the text we read earlier in Isaiah 53, would be a nobody as well. It continues in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. We, we thought God's taking it out on him. He's being punished. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, the love of God comes to the oppressed and the broken. It comes to them and through them. Psalm 34, 18. This is a good one to memorize because there's times you can pray it from your heart. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. If that... If that hasn't hit you in the gut, it will one day if you remember it. Because you will be the brokenhearted. You will be crushed in spirit one day. And you've got to remember that. It comes to the oppressed and it comes through them. And this is something, I think, seriously that we have to deal with in our own lives. Because I know us. I know that we are far richer and have far more power and op- opportunities than most people in the world. And that can often cause us to discount or minimize the value of others who don't have as much as we do. Or to not make space for them in our lives. And yet God chooses in this story throughout scripture to love the world through the outcasts and the bottom of the social structure. And maybe that's how he'll choose to show us his love. Maybe the people we reject are the very ones that God is trying to use to say, I love you. Third, and related to this, is that the love of God comes to bless and empower the outsiders. Who would have thought that the shepherds would be the first to hear? My, one of my favorite Christmas books, see I'm avoiding hyperbole and saying my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas is a kid's book called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. It's by Barbara Robinson. Anybody ever read The Best Christmas Pageant Ever? You should read It's a little short book. You can read it in an hour and a half. It's about... Uh, the daughter of the Christmas pageant uh, production in a certain church and a family in that town known as the Herdmans. And this is how she describes the Herdman kids. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and they stole and they smoked cigars, even the girls. And they talked dirty and they hit little kids and they cussed their teachers and they took the name of the Lord in vain and they set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken down tool house. 
That was the Herdmans. Well, the Herdmans decided, they heard that there was food and things at the church, and they decided they wanted to come to the church, and the day they showed up at the church to get the food was the day they were inviting people to come and be a part of the Christmas pageant. And the Herdmans decided they were going to be a part of the Christmas pageant. And because everybody was terrified of the Herdmans, when Imogene, the oldest sister, wanted to be married, nobody else was going to be married. And, and basically, they got all the key roles in the Christmas play. And, and the whole story builds this, this, that you're dreading this night when they're actually going to go on the Herdman family as a Christmas play with the normal church kids as just the kind of supporting cast. And, and the daughter of the, the, the director, while the play is going on, this is what she says. She says, they look like the people you see on the 6 o'clock news, refugees sent to wait in some ugly place with all their boxes and sacks around them, it suddenly occurred to me that this was just the way it must have been for the real Holy Family. Stuck away in a barn by people who didn't much care what happened to them. They couldn't have been very neat and tidy either, but more like this Mary and Joseph in our play. And, and she's, she's so taken by this that she misses the beginning of the singing of Silent Night, and this is what she says. I was so busy planning new ways to save the baby Jesus because she's worried about the baby Jesus, that I missed the beginning of Silent Night, but it was all right because everyone sang Silent Night, including the audience, and we sang all the verses too, and when we got to Son of God Loves Pure Light, I happened to look at Imogene, and I almost dropped my hymn book on a baby angel. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the Herdmans to do something absolutely unexpected, and sure enough, that was what happened. Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. Well, it was the best Christmas pageant we ever had. Everybody said so, but nobody seemed to know why. And when it was over, people stood around the lobby of the church talking about what it was different this year. There was something special, everyone said. They couldn't put their finger on what. Miss Wendelkin said, well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a black eye. That was something special but only what you might expect. She meant that's what you might expect from a herdman to have a black eye, but actually nobody hit Imogene. She didn't hit anyone else. Her eye wasn't really black either. It was just all puffy and swollen. She had walked into the corner of the choir road cabinet in kind of a daze as if she had just caught onto the idea of God and the wonder of Christmas. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it because now... Because of the Hermans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene had asked me about what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus, but that was just part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father who were in a lot of trouble, no money, no place to go, no doctor, nobody they knew, and then arriving from the east, like my uncle from New Jersey, some rich friends. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas just came over her all at once like a case of the chills and fever, and so she was crying and walking into the furniture. You've got to read that story. That's a great little story. The love of God comes not to make us more comfortable, not to soothe our fairly good lives, but to bless and empower the outsiders, the outcast, the herdmans, and the shepherds. Because the truth is, we are all outsiders. No matter how hard we try to hide it, no matter how, how sweet we smell and how much money we have and how many possessions we have and how safe we are in our nice warm homes, we are all outsiders except for the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world 
to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the lowly things of the world, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before the Lord. See, that's why it's good news of great joy to all people. Do not be afraid. Love has come for you no matter where you are. And when you get this, when that love hits you right, right in the gut, you come to realize another way that love comes. Love comes inspiring action and ongoing contemplation. I love how the story ends. The shepherds move. Let's go see this. And Mary watched all of this, and it says in verse 19, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the same thing should happen to us. When that love comes to us, there's this two-pronged response. First of all, we move, we act, we go, we share that love with others. But we also sit and we soak and we reflect and we let that love go deeper and deeper and deeper into a very core of who we are. Because as we soak in it, as we take it in, that love becomes a part of us. Like Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Do you see those two prongs? Let that love, I just want you to to understand the love that goes beyond understanding and then I want you to live the life worthy of that calling that you've received that you would contemplate and soak in that love and let the love of God become deeply powerful and real to you, and then that you would go and share it with the world. Because this is the love of God coming all those years ago, and if you can grasp it, if you can grasp it and, and let it penetrate to the deepest part of you, your life will never be the same again, and neither will the lives of the people you influence from this day forward. Let's pray. God, it's a common story. And yet it's so uncommon. It's so unbelievable that what we're actually saying is that you took on flesh in this powerless form of a human child as a way to show your love for us. And God, we just ask that um, that as we go through this week, as we build up to Christmas, as we come together on Christmas Eve, as we gather with family and friends or whatever we're doing, that you would allow us to to hear your word of grace as we experience the glory, that you would allow us to, to, to soak in this love that you have given to the world and that we would be changed and that we would become these channels through which that love flows to everyone else around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close. All right, the kids are going to come up. I think they're coming up. And Sig, I'll put my mic down near them so the people at home can hear what they have to say. For I I am convinced convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, or any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be separate us from the love of God that is Christ. Jesus, our Lord.